Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. The battles of ancient Greece have been immortalised in popular culture, from films like Troy and the 300 to literature, art and music. But what were these battles really like, and who fought in them? I'm Alice Hazel, a classical archaeology and ancient history student at Lady Margaret Hall, and today I'll be talking to Dr Rolkan Iondike, Derby Fellow in Ancient History at Lincoln College, to discuss how Greek warfare functioned and to take a look at one of the most famous conflicts in history, the Persian Wars. Hi Roll, welcome to Oxpods. Thank you so much for coming on today. Before we begin, would you please introduce yourself? Uh, hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is Roll Kanayendag. Uh, I'm Derby Fellow in Ancient History at Lincoln College and I teach Greek history. We're here today to talk about Greek warfare and specifically the Persian Wars. And before we dive into it, I'm interested to know how you came to study ancient history and why you became interested in this particular field of study. Yeah, I've been interested in ancient history for a really long time, I think since primary school, but never really thought that I could make it into something that I could do professionally until I started studying. And at the same time, I was doing things like playing games like Rome Total War, and I was watching movies like Troy, and I was really enjoying these things. And I started to wonder if, like, how much we really know about that? Like, I was studying history at the time, I hadn't really sort of chosen the subfield yet, but I was starting to really think about this, like, okay, well, how much do we actually know about this? How reliable are our reconstructions? And then it turned out that at my university at Leiden in the Netherlands, um, there was someone teaching Greek warfare as a module. So I took that module and I kind of never looked back. And we're here today, like I said, to talk about um, Greek warfare. Um, but for someone who knows absolutely nothing about the ancient world, this is obviously quite, you know, a foreign concept. So firstly, how did Greek warfare work? <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of a big question. <laughs> Obviously, you know, the ancient history is it's very remote, so we, we don't have as much information as we would like. And when you're talking about more modern warfare, we have all these detailed records and minutes and, and dispatches. Ancient warfare, we don't really know all that much, but we can reconstruct more or less how it worked from historical accounts, from archaeological evidence, you know, we can piece it together. Um, but the main thing I always like to stress about Greek warfare is that it's much simpler, much less organized and less professional than we um, might take for granted when we think about warfare. So when you're thinking about armies and you're thinking about soldiers, you're picturing them in barracks and in military academies and, you know, standing to attention, obeying orders and all these kinds of things. Um, Greek warfare was a much more um, sort of ad hoc affair. Like if you were a member of a Greek community, if you lived in one of these ancient Greek city states, um, it was your duty as a citizen, if you were a man, to serve in the army. And even if you were, you know, any member of, the, of society, you know, women, enslaved people, everyone who lived in these communities um, were expected to contribute to the defense. So if the enemy came to the gates, you know, everybody was expected to participate. And if there was a conflict going on, then all of the adult men were called up to fight and they would have to provide their own weapons and they would just have to come out with everybody else and, and do their best. And Obviously, these are not professional armies, and these are just, just guys who are just drafted for the moment. Um, and so the kind of warfare that they would be capable of was really quite, I don't really want to use a word like primitive, but simple. So they were only able to perform like very basic tactics, maneuvers. They couldn't stay in the field for very long because, you know, these are just ordinary people. They have to come back to, um, to work their farms and to work in their shops. They have to make sure that they can feed their families. So they're not like a modern professional army that can sort of go off and um, be its own professional body, you know, an institution of people who just live for this purpose, who, who just sort of um, serve their communities as professional soldiers until they are, you know, discharged. Um, these are people who 
or you know, just momentary sort of Sunday warriors, so to speak. Um, and so we can't really expect very much of them. I think that's the that's the main thing that I always like to say about what is Greek warfare like. Well, it's very simple. You just have to imagine that these people can't be asked to do too much. Okay, and that sort of provokes the question is why were wars fought? Because it's not like the Roman army or even colonialism conquering other territories. If these are small armies, um, what was it that motivated these kind of conflicts? Yeah, so the scope is much smaller, right? So you have city-states in general, they have very small populations. Even the biggest ones, they might be able to muster an army of just a few thousand men. And so they don't have the manpower to go and conquer large territories or, you know, destroy empires or anything like that. Um, they really struggle with even serving abroad for any length of time. So if you go on a, on a bunch of ships and go overseas and besiege a city, that's really disruptive because that means that a lot of your, you know, your labor force, essentially, your, your, your people who are, you know, members of families, members of communities, members of economic units, and they're off, you know, for months at a time. Well, this is going to be really difficult to sustain. Um, so they, um, the kind of things that they do are much smaller and the kind of reasons why they go to war with each other are usually much more local and sometimes they seem to us to be almost trivial. Um, the main sort of cliche one, I guess, is like strips of borderland. Sometimes there is a patch of land between two city-states and they both want it. Okay, we can understand that very easily, but actually a lot of the time that's not why they fight wars. It's much simpler things. It's things like trying to um, uh, to right wrongs that other, other mechanisms have failed to resolve. Like there will be disputes over um, not just the use of borderlands, but over the treatment of envoys, over the treatment of guests, or over um, the rights to certain sanctuaries, or over um, the, the exploitation of certain resources. Or it can be something that is entirely to do with the way that people feel that they are, they are being treated, like whether they are being given the respect that they believe they deserve, which sounds to us a bit silly, but that's really a genuine motivation for a lot of these Greek wars, is that they feel that they ought to be treated in a certain way, not even for any kind of economic gain, not because they believe that it will mean, you know, material uh, benefits, but just because they believe that there is a sort of pecking order in the world and they ought to be treated in the, the way that they believe that they've earned. And if somebody doesn't give them that treatment, they'll make up some other reason to go to war with them and they will provoke these kind of conflicts which are very much, you know, very brutal conflicts, but they are rarely about outright conquest or about subjugation. I mean, eventually they are about sort of forms of subjugation, like subjecting people to tribute, for instance, or making them part of your alliance system and forcing them to do your bidding. But for the most part, they are about essentially settling scores. And I think we really should should see that see it as settling scores more than anything else. That's fascinating. And you spoke about how it's not a super organised type of army, but obviously this is more than just a brawl outside of hub. You know, this is a proper war. I'm interested to know kind of how did the Greek armies work? Did they actually train together? Um, were there formations that they used, or was this really just like a sort of a band of men together going off to fight. Yeah, I mean, initially it really is a band and, and really is more like a, well, you wouldn't really compare it to a, a brawl outside of a pub, but it is very, it, you kind of have to imagine it being very clumsy. So these guys, they will line up in the sense, they will sort of get together on one side of a big field or something and the, uh, the enemies on the other side, and then they will try to, you know, harm each other. Um, but you have to consider this in the early period as being very tentative and very awkward. You know, these kind of some some of these guys are brave enough to go up and fight someone. A lot of the others kind of 
prefer to hang back. They don't want to be, you know, get into too much danger. So they're just chucking stuff at each other. Hopefully they'll hit something. Hopefully they'll scare the enemy. The enemy will run away. And then, you know, it becomes easy. You can run after them and stab them back. This is the kind of thing that a lot of this fighting is about. It's not about, you know, the supreme skill of tactical maneuvering. It's much more about trying to get the enemy to break first. And they don't train for this. I mean, you can imagine that Greek elites, you know, people who have a lot of time on their hands because they don't have to work for a living, they can spend some time getting better at using their weapons or anything. But most of the population, they don't have time for that. They've got jobs to do, right? And so when they're called up to fight, that's the first time they're ever together as a unit. That's the first time they're ever together as an army. And they don't train. I mean, they're there to go and fight. And sometimes these campaigns are deliberately designed to last only, you know, a few days, maybe a few weeks at most, but then they have to go back home. So there's no time for that. So you just get together with your, your own equipment that you paid for and you march out as a group and then you, you hope for the best. So in terms of how that develops, if it does become slightly more organized over time, they do start to form sort of regular formations. Um, and famously, of course, the, these Greek heavy infantry, these so-called hoplites, eventually form uh, what's called a phalanx formation, which is just a regular line of heavy infantry in ranks and files. That is to say, they form a sort of grid pattern, you know, one man behind the other and one man next to each other, and they form a sort of rectangle like that. Um, but that's basically just a way to make sure that everybody knows where they are and that there is good order in the line, because order helps you feel confident that you know what you're doing and that you're going to be able to overcome the enemy. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are very skilled at using that formation. It takes a long time for not just the Greeks themselves, especially the Spartans, but also other uh, peoples to basically build from that beginning, from that grid formation of, of troops into something that we might recognize as sort of sophisticated tactics where they are able to wheel a formation or, or you know, outflank the enemy and encircle them or make sort of all sorts of interesting shapes with their troops in order to gain a tactical advantage. Um, the Macedonians and later the Romans become very good at that, but the Greeks themselves, they just don't have the time to really develop those skills. So their formations remain very, very simple. It's just lining up all together and then hoping that, you know, by, by having the semblance of order, you can instill confidence in your troops and scare the enemy into, into uh, losing that confidence. That's really funny. I think Greek warfare in particular has been portrayed, especially in like films, is a little bit glamorized, and you've already mentioned that it's very brutal. So I'm interested to know, like, quite how different is it from how it is portrayed in, you know, films like The 300 or Oof. Troy? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Dare I mention have, the name? <laughs> may have seen me on YouTube commenting on this. No, this is, um, it, it is really interesting. I think the, the way that people do it in movies, they have this assumption that the Greeks, because we talk about the Greeks as, you know, they're very clever people, they invented democracy, and they do all this philosophy. So they must have been quite sophisticated, right? They must have been quite advanced in their understanding of other things as well. You know, we know them also as, you know, very great city builders and architects. So why wouldn't they have been so advanced when, when it comes to warfare? So there's an assumption that if you pit Greeks against non-Greeks, that the Greeks are going to be the ones who represent our idea of civilized warfare. And that tends to be the idea of more, being more disciplined, being more orderly, being sort of calm. And the barbarians, who are not Greeks, are going to be sort of wild and individually maybe very strong and very angry and aggressive, but not as sort of skilled with formations and things like that. And I think that's how it's portrayed in a lot of these movies, that the Greeks are the ones who maintain some level of order and discipline. They know what they're doing and they're very skilled with their weapons. and They have uniform equipment and their enemies are going to be sort of wild and running around and crazy. 
Um, the reality is, is often kind of the opposite. Um, the Greeks are very much in awe of the discipline of the Persians, for instance, who have a much longer tradition of fighting in these kinds of formations, which builds on Near Eastern traditions. And the, the Persians advance into battle in silence and march in step. The Greeks don't generally do that. Um, the Spartans do, but other Greeks don't because they, they don't have the skill to do that. So they're very impressed by that and they find it quite frightening. Um, and similarly, other peoples around the Mediterranean also had just greater discipline than they than they did. So that kind of depiction, um, I'm kind of fond of the one in Troy, actually, because in Troy, it's much more chaotic. And it's actually the Trojans who are more organized and disciplined based on um, the Trojan equipment in that movie is very much based on the on the Assyrians. And they so they have their sort of shield walls and formations, whereas the Greeks just kind of charge into them pell-mell and see what happens. That is actually, I mean, although it's depicted in a much much too chaotic and much too self-destructive manner, it does give you a better sense, I think, of how Greeks go into battle. Yeah, and that kind of brings me on to my next question, because you spoke about how we think of the Greeks as this highly cultured, like they've contributed so much to philosophy, to science. I'm interested to know actually what were the Greeks' contribution to warfare as a kind of I don't want to say an art, but you know what I mean, a science maybe. What was their contribution to that? It's a really interesting question because this is something that I think, you know, in terms of the study of Greek warfare, you know, historians have looked at Greek warfare for many centuries and they've always tried to make it into a story, right, where you go from primitive warfare to modern warfare. And so they try to put each civilization as a sort of step along that road. And it's easy enough to say, okay, from the Greeks and then to Alexander and the Macedonians and then to the Romans, it's like a progression that becomes more complex, it becomes more sophisticated, and it becomes more effective. So the Greeks can maybe stop the Persians, Alexander can, you know, defeat the Persians, uh, and then the Romans can build an empire like that of the Persians. So you can keep, you can see this sort of development into what warfare can achieve. Um, but... I think in doing so, they kind of overstate how much of that is down to sort of military superiority and how much is down to military ability because the Greeks don't really have that much that isn't already, it doesn't already exist, for instance, in the Near East or in Egypt. Um, they have these organized formations, which they're famous for, but it doesn't really become something that you can really say, oh, this is something genuinely new and interesting until the Macedonians develop those formations into these pike phalanxes. So they have these, these long two-handed uh, pikes that they use in much more rigid formations that also have much more tactical capability. Um, so it's not until then that you really get this sense of like, oh, there's a real development here. There's something new on the battlefield. Um, what you do see among the Greeks, but again, this is also something that you could say they borrowed from the Persians, is the combination of the use of organized, homogenous, so, so, you know, everybody's a heavy infantry man in the main line, and then around the flanks of that line, you have your light infantry, your missile troops, and you have your cavalry, and they operate together. So the heavy infantry pins the enemy, and then you use your cavalry to come round or to strike at the flanks, to scare particular parts of that line. That kind of tactic... Um, you could say that the Greeks uh, at least brought that into Europe, if you will, but it's something that is, again, already seen in the East. One thing that actually I should mention is the invention of uh, torsion artillery, so catapults. That is definitely something the Greeks did. Um, so <laughs> if you wanted to name one thing, the technology, um, most, of the Greek, most of Greek military methods and even equipment is borrowed from the East. It's borrowed from Near Eastern traditions and developed from there. Um, but the catapult is genuinely something that the Greeks invented around uh, 400 BC. 
And that obviously has has totally changed the way that wars are fought. That's really interesting. Um, and now I do want to talk about the Persian Wars because I think it's a really exciting <laughs> part of history. Um, and firstly, who were the Persians? Because I think they get overlooked quite a lot. Yeah, no, the Persians are great. I mean, the Persians are, are the world power of the time uh, in which the Greeks are sort of uh, at the height of their of their culture, so you have the classical period of um, of of Greek culture, which is the fifth and fourth centuries BC, but that is also the time at which the acknowledged and unrivaled superpower of the world is the Achaemenid Persian Empire. So they are um, they cover the entire more or less the entire uh, uh, Middle East from the coast of the Aegean all the way to India um, and from Egypt all the way in uh, onto the Black Sea. So you have this huge, huge area. This is the largest empire that had ever existed up to that point, right? So there is no other empire that had ever covered quite that much territory. Um, and it grew very quickly out of a heartland, which is now in sort of southwestern Iran. Um, and the, basically the, the, the Persian peoples, who were one of the Iranian peoples who lived there, um, they expanded very rapidly and, and, and seized control over first the entire um, sort of northern area of the, of the Near East and then back into Mesopotamia and then across into Egypt. And they maintained that empire for 200 years, for, for just over 200 years. And so that entire period in which, you know, you have Athens and Sparta and the Peloponnesian War and Socrates and the great, you know, the tra tragedies of, of Athens and all these great things that we still talk about, all that time Persia is sitting there um, in the East being, you know, the vast world power that the Greeks look to. And, you know, they, they can't imagine a world without this, this, this presence. You know, it's, 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 they're constantly in negotiations with them, in trade with them. There are Greeks moving around this empire. There are Persians moving around the Greek world. There is, um, there is just this, this huge uh, truth, I guess, in their world that, that the Persian Empire rules all of Asia. That's how they understand it. Wow, I think it's so crazy it gets glossed over and I'm interested to know a bit more about the Persian military because you've already mentioned that they were really highly organised. So how did their military work as opposed to the Greeks? What made them organisationally superior? So this is actually really hard to know because the reason why we talk more about Greeks than we do about Persians is uh, partly because there are just a lot more sources from the Greek world than there are from the Persian. And there are many reasons for this. I mean, it's difficult to access the sources that we do have, but it seems mostly that the Persians just didn't have a similar tradition of writing history that the Greeks develop in this period, right? So you get people like Herodotus and Thucydides who write the history of, of Greece, but there aren't such figures in the, in the Persian world. And so you don't get the same amount of analysis and detail that we'd like to have, the same amount of narrative uh, of the events of the period from the Persian side. So it's very hard to piece it together. But we do obviously get a lot of Greeks. Sometimes they're fighting against the Persians. Sometimes they're working with the Persians. And so they do tell us a little bit about that. Um, and what we can tell from that, I mean, the Persian, uh, Persian military forces, they're firstly, they're very organized in the sense that they are draw, drawn from the Persian elite themselves and they take great pride in their military skills. And so they depict themselves and also the Greeks paint them as being very organized, uh, heavy spearmen. So again, they have these large shields and spears and bows that they carry into battle. Um, and they're, a, they're very organized according to sort of breakdown by units and they are able to respond to orders and things like that. Um, and then there are two things to add to that because that makes them sound kind of similar to Greeks. Um, 
but they firstly have very effective cavalry which is something that they also pride themselves in the nobility fights on horseback uh, a lot of the time and they're very capable as as archers and skirmishers on horseback um, and they're also willing to engage enemies you know just to to charge in and, and overrun them uh, and that's something the greeks are really afraid of right they have their own cavalry they they try to build that throughout this period they they really focus more and more on having strong horsemen um, but for now, the Persians, for most of this period, the Persians just dominate in that department. Um, and the other thing is, of course, when you have this huge empire, um, you subject all those peoples to uh, not just to tribute, but to military obligations. So you tell them, like, if we say we're going to march somewhere, then you have to serve. And so the Persian army is potentially, although not always, they don't always draw all these people out to fight. But when they do, the Persian army is very large. And they can also really specialize. So they can say, well, we need the local regional specialisms of these different people. So we're going to call on these people because those are going to be very effective in the fight ahead. Um, so they have huge military resources and they're relatively, uh, relatively organized and relatively um, uh, uh, practiced in their skills. So with the Persian Wars, I mean, what we've just described is an enormous empire with what sounds like millions of people versus... Greece, which is just sort of a higgledy-piggledy collection of cities. So what were the Persian Wars? Why did they break out? When did they happen? Um, sort of what was the catalyst for that? Yeah, so I mean, the Persians arrive in the Greek world very early on, actually. They expand very quickly into the west of what is now Turkey. And that's where there are Greek settlements on that coastline. Um, and those are pretty much immediately subjected. Um, and for the next several generations, they are part of the Persian Empire. So, I mean, the Greeks know the Persians are there, um, but the Persians are busy with other stuff. You know, they're expanding into Egypt and they're having a sort of big succession crisis after the first two kings. So they're, they're busy. You know, that, that empire is still being established and it's still sort of consolidating. But there is this sense that there is a Persian sort of massive empire in the East, um, which people are, are obviously interacting with and communicating with. And you know, part of the Greek world is dealing with being subject to them. But eventually the Greeks resume or the, the Persians resume expansion to the West. And so basically that is what we call the Persian Wars. It's just the Persians deciding, OK, well, we've pacified these other areas. We've covered, you know, we've, we've reached, you know, the, the deserts in the West and we've reached the, uh, the, you know, the steppes in the North. And now we're going to focus on the West. And part of the reason for that, actually, is because the Greeks from the Greek mainland, um, so across the Aegean Sea, have been meddling in um, the affairs of the western end of the Persian Empire. So for at one point in 499 BC, um, the Greek communities of this area, along with a couple of other peoples that they ally with, um, revolt against the Persian Empire. And the Persians have to go and put down this revolt, which they do. Um, but some of the Greek states from the mainland offer them support. And at that point, obviously, the Persians become very aware that there are these other Greeks across the sea who are a cause of instability. So they may actually upset the stability of the empire, and so something has to be done about them. And that's when um, initially uh, King Darius I, or Darius the Great, um, decides to send some armies and fleets across the Aegean to try and deal with that, but it doesn't work. Um, one of them is basically shipwrecked and wiped out. The next one does manage to conquer a lot of the islands, but then when it lands at Athens, that army is famously defeated in the Battle of Marathon in 490. Um, and so it, it's left kind of as unfinished business until Darius's son Xerxes comes to power and he decides uh, he's going to make that his thing. So he's going to draft all of, his, all of his empire in this massive sort of display army, this huge all-imperial force. He's going to take that across into Europe and he's going to subject the Greeks. 
And with all that in mind, the Greeks famously won the Persian Wars, spoiler. How did the Greeks possibly win against the massive army, having discussed all of the way the Greeks' armies worked? And what could have possibly happened for that to have occurred? Yeah, odds are not in their favour. And in fact, I mean, a lot of Greeks were aware of this, right? So you have a lot of these Greek states who, who hear about the Persians coming and they say, well, that's that's it. Like, well, we just, we'll just submit. Because it is honestly, you know, there isn't that much of a threat as I think um, people like to paint it as. I and mean, nowadays we have this picture of the Greeks heroically fighting to save their societies and civilization and culture against this encroaching Eastern threat. But actually, as I said, you know, Greek communities have been under Persian rule by this point for generations. They're doing fine. Um, some of these cities are explicitly flourishing. They're, they're really not having to suffer any kind of intervention. And in fact, when they rebel in order to get rid of their local tyrants who were like Persian puppet, uh, puppet rulers, um, and install democracies, the rebellion is crushed, but the Persians leave the democracies in place. They're basically just saying, well, if you, if you want to do it that way, we don't mind as long as you pay the tribute. So the idea that this is some kind of existential threat is hugely overstated. And a lot of Greeks are aware of this. And so they just decide like, you know what? <laughs> There's no point fighting these people. Let's just give up. It's, it's all right. And some of them actively do this. I mean, they want to, right? So some of them, are using the Persians to settle local disputes. And they're like, oh, you have a big army. Well, I have some enemies. Can you beat them up for me? And then we'll, put, we'll do whatever you want, right? Um, so the, they're using this to settle their local affairs. As I said, they always have scores against each other that they want to settle. So a lot of these Greeks don't bother to resist at all. But the Athenians and the Spartans at this point decide to resist along with their various allies. And that is partly out of principle. They don't want to be subject to another state. Um, they have all these high-flying ideas about, about how important they are. Um, but also partly there is this sense that they owe it to, um, uh, to their own allies to sort of stand up to protect them against these encroachments. Or in the case of Athens, they just don't expect that they're going to be treated mercifully because they were some of the ones who went and supported these other Greeks and they defeated the Persians already at Marathon. So they kind of suspect that the Persians are not going to be nice, right? The Persians have a tendency to, you know, to be lenient to those who submit, but ruthless to those who resist. Um, so they decide to, to resist this force. Um, and initially it doesn't go well. I mean, the, there's a, a, a force is sent to pass at Thermopylae. This is the famous battle of Thermopylae. Um, the Spartans lose. It's, it's really not difficult for the Persians to overcome that. Um, so the Greeks at that point are in real trouble. Huge parts of the Greek world are overrun. Um, the Athenians and other Greeks lose faith in Sparta uh, as, as leader of the alliance because they did so poorly at Thermopylae. So we, we know that there is a sort of, there's a rift forming in this alliance. And it's starting to look like there's no hope at all for the remaining resisting Greeks. Um, but then, to everybody's surprise, the Athenians win the naval battle at Salamis. Um, and this is not just, just just the Athenians. They have about half of the ships of this massive alliance. And it's not and a, a fleet is, is technically led by a Spartan. Um, but that battle is kind of the point at which it suddenly becomes possible to imagine that you don't just submit to, uh, to Persia or you don't just face the inevitable, but that it might be possible to turn this around. Um, and in fact, at that point, the Athenians have won you know, 10 years ago at Marathon and now at Salamis. So there's a sense, a growing sense of like, OK, maybe it is, it is possible. And when that's realized, I mean, firstly, for the Persians, I mean, this has been so far great success until the Battle of Salamis. Um, Xerxes now goes home with most of the army because all these people are also, you know, drafted for this occasion. So they have to go home. 
Um, so they all sort of go home and they leave behind the core of the army. They leave behind, you know, the Persians themselves, who are the most capable and most well-trained professional troops, um, along with some of their allies who are believed to be uh, most useful on this occasion. And they're basically told like, OK, well, you've already defeated the Spartans at Thermopylae. You've already taken Athens. You've burned it to the ground, you know, mop up the rest of the resistance and then we'll be done. And then Greece will be ours. Um, but it's at that point that the Greeks decide, okay, the remaining Greeks decide, okay, if we bring out all of our armies, uh, like the whole of our citizen population, essentially, for a single decisive battle, um, since the Battle of Salamis given them confidence, we might just pull this off. And how do the Greeks win that? Well, it's, it's honestly not entirely certain. Even the Greeks themselves struggled to explain this afterwards because it was so incredible. Um, but one of the really big factors is that the Greek army was just really large. I mean, this is one of the largest Greek armies ever in history, right? Because they bring together all of the Peloponnese and all of the Athenians and a couple of other peoples as well who are sort of regionally involved. So it's a huge Greek army. It may have been bigger than the, than the Persian army. Herodotus tells us different, but that's something that, you know, we can, we can quibble with those numbers. It's a very, very large number of Greeks all of a sudden. And they decide to fight this battle and even though they are, you know, outmaneuvered and outsmarted by the by the Persian general on various occasions, when it comes down to, you know, the actual confrontation of Persian against Spartan on one end of the line and, and Athenians against other Greeks who are on the Persian side on the other end of the line, it comes down to some extent to just like endurance and metal. And at that point, it turns out the Greeks just, you know, they're just too stupid to realize when they've lost. And so they pull through somehow. And unbelievably, they managed to, um, to defeat the Persians in that critical engagement. They managed to kill the Persian general. The Persian army panics, runs away, and that's it. That's the end of the Persian invasion of Greece. Well, it's such a brilliant story. And I think it's definitely been immortalized more than other ancient conflicts, would you say? Um, do you think the reason for it is just that it was almost like a fluke or do you think that there's other reasons for it? What was the significance that means we're now talking about it and there's films made about it? Well, part of it is it's, it's such a glorious story and the Greeks already realised this in the sense that no one would have given that, <laughs> no one put, put their money on the Greeks, so to speak. This is the, you know, this expanding world empire. Um, no one up to that point had been able to decisively check their expansion. I mean, they had invaded Scythia previously and they had to turn back. But, you know, there's not much there in the sense of like um, stable rule anyway, because it's so far away from the Persian core. So it would have been difficult for them to, um, to imagine that the, anyone could have decisively defeated the Persians. Um, and, and it is something that for the Greeks coincides as well with the rise of uh, their self-consciousness that they might actually be able to build these power blocks for themselves. So for instance, the Athenians not too, um, not too long before this have started building this huge fleet, which now turns out to be the decisive element in this huge battle against the Persians. So there is a sort of combination of how incredible it was for the Greeks themselves um, how implausible as a sort of bigger narrative about like this tiny group of states uh, defeating this larger empire um, and how it ties into the later history of the Greeks saying, well, if, the, if this is something we can achieve, then we are sort of destined for greatness or something like that. And from that basis, it builds into uh, narratives that I think are maybe less savory, but um, obviously have been very inspiring through the ages, like the idea that there is something about the Greeks that they unite against this foreign threat and that they're able to resist it, which we really have to be critical about this. I mean, it's only a few of the Greeks. 
Um, they're fighting against an army that has more, almost as many Greeks in them as they have. Um, they are fighting against an empire that isn't necessarily some kind of force of, you know, existential threat to their existence. Um, but it is, it is obviously a story of small states retaining their autonomy against, against a vast empire. That, that much is undeniable. And so they managed successfully to do that and even push back um, Persian, Persian rule over other areas. Um, and that's just the kind of story that we always like to hear. You know, we're rooting for the underdog, so to speak. So, so that's, I think that's why. I think that's why we like to talk about it. For history, an important thing is not just what happened, but what we can learn from it. And I'm aware it's a big question, but do you think that there's anything nowadays in the 21st century that we should learn from the Persian Wars? Or do you think it's sort of too remote? Well, uh, I think... <laughs> It's, it's important to learn from these stories, not necessarily, you know, how you would how you would defeat the Persians, um, but much rather in the sense of like, how do we understand an event like this? And I think it's very, very important to um, to stress that it's tempting to tell a very simple story. You know, the Persians came, the Greeks banded together and defeated them. But actually, the story is really complex. Like there are different Greeks making different decisions based on their own priorities and based on the kind of things that they thought were important and based on the kind of odds that they pictured for themselves. Um, in fact, a lot of the uh, a lot of different Greek peoples actively wanted the Persians to come to Greece because it helped them resolve, as I said, these these local disputes, or because it helped them regain power over their own states. You know, they used the Persians as a kind of you know friend with power, or friend with money, um, and the Greeks would continue to do that. You know, even after their victory in in this event, the Persian Empire, you know, wasn't existentially threatened by this victory. In fact, they stayed in power for hundreds of years. And the Greeks always went to Persia if they needed money, if they needed help in their own wars, in their own disputes. So they, they, they had a very different view of the Persians, I think. And it's very easy to simplify this into a story of, you know, clash of civilizations. In practice, it's much more pragmatic than that. And we can look at that and say, don't be too tempted to simplify the story. Don't be too tempted to think that people will always act a certain way based on certain basic characteristics like, oh, if you're a Greek, you will fight the Persians. It's not like that. It's actually, um, it's much more, I mean, it's a historian's cliche, it's much more complex than that, actually. Um, but it, it helps us to understand other conflicts as well, I think, to, to realize that even this conflict, which seems so simple on the face of it, has so many layers to it and has so many different actors in it. Thank you. Yeah. And as you just said, there's always more layers to it. So if anyone is inspired by this podcast to learn more, what would you recommend to them? I mean, there are some really good books. I mean, on the Persian Wars, obviously, there are loads and loads of these things that come out all the time. But there have recently been some really good ones. So, for instance, William Shepard has this book. It's I think it's called Herodotus and um, and the Persian Wars, something like that. I'd have to look this up. Um, uh, but this is a very good sort of thorough treatment of the kind of different um, uh, uh, stories that we have for the Persian Wars and the way that we can treat that critically and look beyond what the Greeks tell us. Because the Greeks are obviously telling us this great story, which they told themselves about how about their amazing achievements um, but we can get behind that and we can figure out what what really happened based on based on the kind of things they tell us um, so I definitely recommend that and when you're interested in Greek warfare there's recently been um, Richard Taylor's um, uh, book on hoplites um, which is really good at sort of piecing together uh, what Greek warfare looked like and which also goes through all the different uh, modern scholarly debates about this, because it's actually a very fast-moving field. We're changing the way that we're thinking about this a lot recently. So I definitely recommend that. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been really interesting. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. 
To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.